today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, Provincial Commission on uh, Long-Term Care and the problems with long-term care continues, and some rather startling testimony. There's a lot of problems here. I guess the frustration a lot of us are feeling is it's not as if there are no solutions to this. I mean, a lot of the things that are wrong are well known to everybody. A lot of the solutions going forward are wrong, and there has to be, I think, a change of attitude. Now, we've talked with a number of experts about this uh, over the last couple of months, really. Uh, and again, a lot of the problems in long-term care were not necessarily caused by COVID. They were magnified by COVID. Uh, these, these things have been going on for the longest time. Uh, one of our guests uh, last week, of course, Dr. Damit Araria, explains why private for profit long-term care seem to have worse outcomes. That's related to the fact that, well, one of the ways they generate revenue is by keeping their health workers poor. They're more likely to have, you know, part-time casual staff. They're less likely to have people who are, pay, you know, being paid benefits. And what that means in the middle of a pandemic is they're more, much more likely to end up in these staffing crises and, you know, these scenarios where we hear of these, you know, appalling situations of neglect where people are ending up without food and water. And that absolutely should not happen. Dr. Harry is a member, of course, of uh, Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care. Uh, one of the co-founders of that organization, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, uh, who is also a professor at the Ontario Tech University, uh, joins us to talk about this. Uh, doctor, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much. I know it's a busy day for you today. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Bill. We can go around in circles, uh, Vivian, talking about all the concerns, and as as the doctor just did a couple of minutes ago. But I guess I want to shine the light on on some testimony from the minister of long term care uh, that essentially, I mean, as I read this, essentially says that they were aware of the concerns and the problems. Uh, as a matter of fact, even probably offered up some possible solutions to this, uh, and it it seems to me as if they were ignored by the the the, the province, by the the premier, and whomever else was was making policy here. Uh, pretty much. You would see a lot of instances where, um, you know, like Minister Fullerton would say, yeah, I think it was important to have visitors in sooner, but, you know, the CMHO just didn't want that. So there was a lot of passing the buck off to him, um, which, you know, is very convenient. So is that really her opinion or is it just passing the buck? Who knows, right? But some of the things that I thought were most pressing from that uh, testimony were the fact that the commissioners pointed out that uh, it was her responsibility prior to the pandemic to have an emergency preparedness plan for such cases, epidemics, pandemics. And it was not only her job to have a plan, but to both procure the necessary resources for said plan and to also simulate emergency exercises with the long-term care homes to make sure they were prepared. That never happened. Um, not heeding the early warnings from uh, multiple groups, including the Ontario Nurses Association, who met with her in uh, early February. So before it really, you know, hit home in March here, and they themselves were pointing out how worried they were about her inability to answer basic questions and her uh, evident lack of prepare, you know, preparation and concern for what was to come. Um, you know, not fully banning workers working in multiple homes, despite the fact that SARS very clearly documented this was a dangerous no-no, while also pointing out that we also learned from SARS, but we also knew this from the Gilly staffing report, that they knew this problem of labor casualization was the worst in long-term care and community care. So it made the more, all the more sense for them to have planned for a surge capacity even before any such pandemic hit us. Um, you know, not admitting they didn't engage in a staffing uh, blitz, even though they had a staffing crisis and they well knew about this. And Minister Fullerton just did not seem to understand 
the issues with this sector. And uh, I don't know if that is genuine or if that is, you know, playing the fool, but she would say things like, you know, the, explaining the, the large amount of part-time work in the sector due to PSW choice. But she wasn't sure, but she thinks it's because PSWs want choices to work part-time, which is hilarious because all of the evidence says the opposite, including her own staffing report. Doctor, and, have, and you, have you ever run into anybody in these homes that says, look, it, I don't want benefits, okay? I, I want low m- income, and, and, and can I oh, have yeah. the option to work at a number of different jobs? And that's, is, if that's somebody's dream job, I mean, she's dreaming in Technicolor. Well, exactly. And keep in mind, we all know that there is some need for flexibility. Fine, which is why the vast majority of experts, of, including ourselves, the Doctors for Long-Term Care Justice, have called for a 70-30 split. 70 full-time, 30 full, uh, part-time. Not this 50, you know, 50 to 60% part-time that we have for PSWs. I mean, this is not working. This is not tenable. Um, and then there was, you know, many cases where, you know, she would talk about residents' rights when it suited her. So they talked about not decanting residents, which is transferring them out of dangerous homes to safer alternative settings, because, you know, they talked to the ethics table. And the ethics table said, well, these are their homes, so it might be unconstitutional to, you know, move them. Yet, but you had no problem with the en masse violation of their rights with mass detention orders from, you know, March to effectively July. And yes, you pass the buck and say that was Dr. David Williams, but give me a break. You couldn't have also argued that, that is clearly against the long-term care homes legislation, which is under your specific domain. You know, you're supposed to know that legislation. You knew this was an en masse violation of rights. But clearly, that was not a problem. You only talk about, you know, constitutional rights when it actually involves moving them to somewhere safer. Give me a break. It's just too much. One of the other things that, that bothered me about this as I was going through the, some of the testimony, though, Doctor, uh, this was a creation of the Ford government, this Minister of Long-Term Care. It's, it's really a child of the Ministry of Health. And, and I got the sense as, as the, the testimony went on that what Minister Fullerton was doing was essentially just waiting to get her orders from the Minister of Health as opposed to being proactive yeah. and saying, okay, I gotta, I, they, they just hand me the ball, i got to run with this. Uh, she, she really... Well, she I guess from the, the, the premier standpoint, she's a good team player because she never spoke out. <laughs> Precisely. And then, you know, what was also noticeable to me during this testimony is that her deputy minister did the vast majority of talking. And there'd be instances where they would ask her a question and she'd be like, um, I'm not too sure. You have to ask the deputy about that. What do you mean you're not too sure? One of the one of the most important cases of this, you know, reflected reflecting this is that Orchard Villa. We knew that that was one of the biggest failures, bar none. So they, the, the commissioners found one of her handwritten notes that said on April 17th, military plan needed. Get them in within 24 to 48 hours. Ask me when, they went, when the military actually went in. So when? April 28th, 11 oh. days later, when the damage was done. And when they asked her about that, you know, she said, well, uh, you know, it's complicated, but I'm not too sure about the details. I wasn't privy to the, arranging that. Well, then who was? (laughs) Are you kidding me? It just felt like she took a back seat throughout this whole process and that her deputy minister was running the show in addition to everyone else but her. It was just very, very disconcerting to watch this. And I mean, how about the fact that, you know, her IPAC, her, her ministry inspectors apparently weren't trained on infection prevention and control. So they didn't necessarily know what to look for the few times they were sent out to homes. The scant funds they actually sent for IPAC, which was laughable, and you'd actually need four times the amount to hire one IPAC person per home. They didn't do that. 
Uh, how about the, you know, preparedness surveys they sent to the homes ahead of the second wave. So in the summer, they sent them all surveys, told them, told them to send it back to them as soon as they could. And apparently they didn't review them because if they did, they would have found out that homes like Sunnycrest, which was one of the hardest hit homes where all but one resident contracted COVID, uh, them themselves noted that they felt unprepared, yet nothing was done to help them to prepare. What's the point of sending out preparedness surveys if you're not going to actually read them and send the help when the homes are telling you they need help? I mean, it's failure from top to bottom. I mean, I could go on. The list goes on and on and on. Just tell me when to stop. If it were you or me or uh, any number of other people, probably most other people, that were given this responsibility, okay, this is a relatively new ministry, uh, we've got a crisis. And by the way, there was a crisis long before they declared there was a crisis. You knew that. Sure. Anybody who had residents or family members in there knew that. Uh, job one has got to be, okay, we've got to get a handle on this. Uh, and, and I can understand the Premier saying, well, I'm not sure about this. Uh, I'll, I'll defer to the minister who's in charge of that. This was her only responsibility, long-term care, Absolutely. not health, not health, not vaccination programs, long-term care facilities. And sounds to me as if she didn't even read the reports that they generated for it. I mean, I agree. It is it is horrifying. You know, they from everybody, Elliot, uh, William. Fullerton, I mean, they just all dropped the ball. And, and and the funny thing is with this government is that they try to say that they're, you know, uh, cutting out the lens and moving to this super Ontario health super system because it'll make them achieve things faster and cut down some of the silos and bureaucratic red tape. Meanwhile, all of them throughout all of these testimonies are like, oh, well, I think that was that person or this person and we're not sure. And, uh, and there's a lot of different players at hand. So it's complicated to know who's in charge. I mean, you literally, <laughs> you just showed your hand that your own processes to apparently cut this red tape was unsuccessful because nobody could seem to identify who was in charge and nobody could seem to step up and actually do the right thing to protect these seniors. One of the other things, and this is an ongoing problem, I think, with the way this government is handled, uh, the, the COVID crisis, not just the long-term care crisis, is the lack of, of communication and transparency. And, and, and I don't consider having a press conference at 1 o'clock every afternoon a communication and transparency. Uh, for instance, if Minister Fullerton had concerns about what Dr. Williams was doing, did she speak up? And if not, and what, we should know that. Because the way that the Premier presents this every day, Doctor, is that there's this unanimity about everything that we're doing. I've talked to the consultants, I've talked to the experts, and here's what we're going to do. I have seen in government, and I've been following politics a long, long time now, uh, ministers that have backbone, and if they believe in principles, they'll actually, if they speak up, and if, if, if possible and if necessary, they'll actually resign and said, if you don't want to listen to me and listen to my expertise, get somebody else. She just sat there in the corner and said nothing. Absolutely. And and the commissioners themselves pointed out how some of the public health Ontario officials stepped down because of the egregious policies by Dr. David Williams that they knew were going to hurt long-term care residents. So they they have the decency to step down, but our Minister of Long-Term Care didn't have the decency to speak up to actually, you know. And another thing, you know, that's a good thing you pointed that out, the commissioners pointed out that she was one of the first in her written notes to herself to point out that asymptomatic transmission was a thing. So they found a note of hers from like February 5th pointing that out. Yet mandatory masking was not put in place for long-term care until April 9th. So you're trying to tell me you knew that asymptomatic spread would be particularly damning in long-term care. And you didn't think to talk to Dr. David Williams and say, you need to immediately put in place mandatory masking. I mean, give me a break. Give me but a break. At that same time, though, Dr. Williams was saying that it was not a problem and not a concern. 
Yeah, because Dr. This is Williams the chief was, medical officer oh, of health saying, oh, no, it's no big deal. Dr. Williams was, frankly, out to lunch, in my opinion. I, I don't know what he was reading, what he was doing, because, I mean, everybody seems to understand and well documented that asymptomatic spread was happening in March. We had public, we had public, you know, uh, reports in as early as mid-March. So I don't know. I honestly, I cannot think of a worse fit person to be running the, the province's health system than, than Dr. David Williams. I mean, that testimony was, I mean, it was the bomb that just kept exploding. I mean, at I, least, you know, in this, in this report by, uh, you know, Dr. Fullerton, she's much, uh, smarter at, um, answering her questions but i mean it, it would appear that even a dr williams didn't even seem to think that any of the things that he was saying was a problem when it was so clearly shocking to everybody that read it but apparently him which is even I, more frightening i i know the premier has shown a propensity right now for for ignoring people that, that you know say he's doing a lousy job i get that but i mean you know being premier or prime minister or whatever it is i mean part of the job is that you have to at least acknowledge this and if somebody is saying wait a second you're doing this the wrong way somebody should investigate this where are the, the voices and who are the voices around the table that are telling him that he's doing a, that great job and that dr williams is bang on and all this stuff uh because it, and again you know we've got shutdowns going on and, and lockdowns and 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 at the same time we have a long-term care problem that is not really being addressed they're still not putting the money into it right now who are these people i mean people like yourself dr aria and so many others uh, dr werner i've talked to you about this in toronto so many other folks that are, are they're not being quiet about this doctor no. they're, they're you guys are making a lot of noise uh and they're not even hearing it let alone listening yeah. to it yeah it's it's really frustrating it would it, it would appear that and maybe you saw this in the trump administration too not that i'm drawing the direct parallel but you know, Trump was very clear to surround himself with a, with a whole team of sycophants, a whole team of yes men, people that would just tell him what he wanted to hear, even though it was clearly ludicrous. And it would appear that this is, you know, a, a modified version of Trump USA and Ontario, because, I mean, there were just so many public calls for change, so many noted, you know, instances of failure along the lines. I mean, we were documenting this for 11 months now. None of this is necessarily new to us, but just reading how early, for example, they knew some of this stuff and that they didn't do anything to actually fix it and that they're admitting it is, is probably the most upsetting because, you know, during the pressers, they would just say, we're taking every measure, every tool, blah, blah, blah. It's that script that Minister Fullerton uses that doesn't really answer a question. Um, but it's just, you know, you really see in black and white how they view this sector, how little uh, attention they, they put into it, and frankly, how little respect they have for the workers. I remember at one point in there, you know, the, the commissioners are hitting her home about this lack of paid sick leave and how that aggravated the Fed, right? We all knew this. We've been talking about this for months. That mm -hmm. they, you know, you, and the government didn't set aside funds to help workers losing income from, you know, the subsequent uh, instruction to not work at multiple facilities. And her reply, you ready for this? The Ministry of Long-Term Care is obviously not in the income support benefits business. And then she says they can go use CERB. But hilariously, you know, the, the commissioners point out that Part-time workers working more than 10 hours wouldn't qualify for CERB. So obviously, this is why they were then going to work sick and making the decision between having to pay their bills or, or you know, potentially endanger the residents. I mean, you put them in an impossible situation because you refused to address the precariatization of that sector. And you knew that this was a problem. You knew this was a potential. And you refused to provide these workers paid sick leave. Or, with that said, bump them all to full-time like BC did. Bumped them to full time and took them all up 
gave them union rates and increased their pay and made sure they only worked at one facility. And that's why they had a tenth of the deaths that we had here in Ontario. And we have been telling them for months to replicate that system. They knew about BC's approach. They chose, they chose to let this unfold the way it did. Well, good luck. Don't hold your breath waiting for that to happen, since obviously a number of the operators in these private facilities have strong connections to the Progressive Conservative Party. Listen, we're just about out of time, Doctor, but I've got to give you a chance for a plug here, because uh, I know that tomorrow, actually, there's going to be a virtual town hall that's going to discuss an awful lot of this uh, uh, being put on by Doctors for Justice. Uh, not Actually, not Doctors for Justice. This is my other group, because, you know, I, I, I have <laughs> a few uh, advocacy groups. You're, you're multitasking. I'm multitasker. This is Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards, which is really okay. just, you know, a small group of four of us, two Orchard Villa families and one of their lawyers. Um, and we're fighting for national standards because we see that there are some governments who are just simply not going to make the changes that are required. And we want the feds to step in and do what they can do to mandate better care for our seniors. Because, I mean, it's Ontario now, what province will it be next? Why is it that in some provinces you have better health care for seniors than others? It's just not right. We need to deal with this. We need to have a better program of more nationalized long-term care that actually has clear standards that can keep these seniors safe. We just have uh, to. I, I know that uh, Jagmeet Singh is going to be part of this too. Is there any way that uh, the public can access this? Yes, we're going to be live streaming it tomorrow on Facebook, and I'll put all those links on Twitter, and it'll be on Facebook too for the Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards uh, pages. Yep. Excellent. Well, good luck with that tomorrow. Uh, and as always, Doctor, thank you so much for the time today. Always a pleasure having you on the program. It's a pleasure talking to you, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, of course, co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care and a professor at Ontario Tech University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.